This episode is an interview given by myself, Volodymyr Yermolenko, Ukraine World's chief editor and host of the Explaining Ukraine podcast, to Kultur Mitla, a podcast by IFA, Institute für Auslandbeziehungen, a German organization for international cultural relations. In this episode, we look at the past year and how Ukrainian civil society and the cultural scene have developed during the war in Ukraine. Explaining Ukraine is a podcast by Ukraine World, a website in English about Ukraine. You can support us on patreon.com slash ukraineworld. You can also support our humanitarian and volunteer trips to the front line at paypal ukraine.resistinggmail.com. So here is our conversation with Kultomitla podcast. Die Kulturmittler, der IFA Podcast zu Außenkulturpolitik. Welcome to a new episode of the Kulturmittler, the IFA podcast on foreign cultural policy. My name is Amirael Al and I'm very glad you're joining us. On the 24th of February 2022, the Russian invasion of Ukraine began, escalating the war that had been simmering since 2014. On this occasion, we want to dedicate the upcoming six episodes to Ukraine, not only to focus on the ongoing war, but also on the developments in the fields of arts and culture and the Ukrainian civil society. In this first special episode, I talked to Volodymyr Yermolenko. In April last year, he was already a guest here on the podcast, and back then the Ukrainian author and philosopher talked about Ukrainian society and what role culture plays in well-being in times of war. In this episode, we'll look back at the past year together. Welcome back to the Kulturmittler, Mr. Yermolenko. Thank you very much. Thank you for having me. It is a pleasure. Mr. Yamolenko, last year you described on this podcast the conflicts that Ukrainian culture has to endure. And you said that on the one hand, there is an immense amount of suffering and destruction of art and living culture. But on the other hand, you said, and I quote you, I feel there are many cultural ideas that probably are in the embryonic state right now. So I really hope that despite all the suffering, culture will have a big revival. Now, a year later, what is the state of culture at the moment in the Ukraine? Do you still have this hope that you voiced back then? Uh, yeah, of course, I do have this hope because uh, culture is always reacting to very dramatic and very tragic circumstances. Culture has a very difficult dialogue with the war because, of course, the war is the, the, the worst thing that can happen with us. It's a destruction, it's suffering, it's amputated futures, it's amputated hopes. But at the same time, this is very strange. Culture always reacts to the war. We can think about Iliad uh, as, as the one of the starting points of European literature. We could, we could think about the Greek tragedies. Uh, we can think about the Baroque time, the time of revival of drama in Europe, etc., etc. The Ukrainian culture has a, you know, we had a very difficult history, which is also full of, of suffering and, and often full of silence. 
this is a silence which is imposed on us by imperial powers, but sometimes it is self-imposed, as if we cannot really talk about the immense suffering which happened during centuries on this land. And therefore, of course, the big task of today is not is of course to win this war, but also to win the capacity to speak in a broader sense of the word, to speak with words, to speak with art objects, to speak with theater, to speak with music. And um, this capacity, I see this capacity, of course, but nothing is guaranteed because so many people are broken by the war. So many people, unfortunately, die and will die. And this is a point where actually everything can happen and we can fall back into silence, which I hope we will not do. But at the same time, yeah, we can use this immense experience, which, as I said, always produces kind of a new culture because it's a very existential moment, the, the grand situation, as, as, as you say in German language. And uh, I think this is, yeah, something that will bring some new, new ideas and new emotions. Can you see already any of these new ideas or this new situation? I mean, the invasion was also designed, I think, to eradicate Ukraine's sense of identity and history. You see like an opposition to that in culture, how like culture is trying to resist this eradication and where new things already are evolving? Obviously, uh, we, we see it in poetry. For example, we see wonderful Ukrainian poets. And by the way, many of them, many of the voices that I cherish in Ukrainian poetry are female voices. The voices of Svetlana Povalyaeva, the voice of Katarina Kalitko, the voice of Katarina Mikhailitsina, and other people. And I'm I'm happy that in Pan Ukraine we started a a new tradition as a kind of a gathering, poetic musical gatherings in Kiev, where we combine poetry and music. And this is very warmly welcomed by people in Kiev who just came in large numbers the first time. Music is very interesting. It's it's interesting that even those singers who actually, you know, will play music, rather pop music, sometimes oriented to Russian-speaking audiences, sometimes lacking really the sense of identity. They are now turning to the Ukrainian music, Ukrainian traditions. And this is, in some aspects, it is very interesting to, to look at the Ukrainian music stage of pop music, of folk music. As I always say, the peculiarity of the Ukrainian culture is to combine modernity and tradition modern technologies in music and the traditional songs, traditional instruments. And this is what we have uh, everywhere. We have the this combination of folk and modernity in, in bands like Dachabracha or Onuka or Go A or Kalush Orchestra who won the Eurovision this year or Christina Solovy or, or many others. And I think this is indeed very interesting. This is kind of a point of energy. We see also in cinemas some things going on, but of course very difficult because cinema needs money, cinema needs funds, and at the same time the Ukrainian state is not really financing cinema, it has other priorities and we have some other difficulties in, in this field. But at the same time we see several documentaries, very strong documentaries, which were, which are right now watched worldwide the documentary of, about Mariupol from uh, Mstislav Chernov, 
a documentary of my friend Nadia Parfan about the the life in Kiev during the during the the very difficult times in February and March and uh, the works of such directors as Irina Tsilik and others. So the culture is actually developing. We also have a very interesting moment in the visual culture, in the visual arts, in paintings. And for example, in, in Kyiv, there are galleries, not, not very big galleries, but which show the paintings of Ukrainian painters who react to this war. People like Matvi Weisberg or people like Vitali Kravets or other painters and um, I think this is very important. We see that the demand for this creation is actually increasing. But still, according to the UNHCR, there are approximately 8 million Ukrainian refugees in Europe. And of course, many of them are also uh, you know, from the fields of art. How has the flight of so many people affected Ukrainian culture, do you think? Well, obviously, this is a very dramatic thing. The, the demography is something that influences everything. And uh, I think we kind of underestimated this, this demographic element when we think about societies uh, in the past decades. And the war just highlights this. If you lose 8 million people out of 38 or 40 million, that means you, you lose the quarter of the population, almost a quarter. And these people are primarily women with children. So it means that Many children, according to some estimates, about one half of school children in Ukraine have emigrated or have left their places. I can judge from the school of my elder daughter, who had about 35 pupils in the class before the big war, and now it's about 15. So obviously this is very dramatic because the country from which women and children flee away, this country is really worried about its future, about about the young people. And of course, the longer the war continues, the lesser incentives there is to come back. I still see many people coming back, of course. Kyiv is not, you cannot compare Kyiv today and Kyiv in, in March 2022. It's now full of life, it's full of people, it's full of cars, it's full of events. The same with Kharkiv. Uh, I, I travel to Kharkiv very often. This is the second largest city. And it's just completely different realities, what you have seen in June, in May, in June, and what you see now. But at the same time, of course, you feel this gap, you feel this void, you feel that there are lesser number of people. And this is something we, of course, we need to work with because I know that many of these people want to come back. But time is playing against us. And about culture, of course, many of these talented people are, are actually from cultural fields. They are artists, they are musicians, they are translators, they are writers. For them, it is maybe easier to find the opportunities in, in Europe, in, in America, in some other countries, because there are, thanks to support of our partners, there are scholarships, there are possibilities. But it is important that when they are abroad, they kind of continue to, to talk about Ukraine, to, to talk about Ukrainian culture. And maybe for many of them, this will also be a learning time, a... Bildungszeit, a time of learning and uh, of enriching their own capacities. 
But also there are, as you said earlier, they are kind of putting a spotlight also on Ukrainian culture that maybe wasn't there before. You know, like you said, it's a point of energy and where like worldwide now people are more aware of Ukrainian culture. So this also they're transporting this abroad. But at the same time, I think many Ukrainians working in the fields of arts, as you also just said, have come back in the last month, taking up again their jobs as dancers, playwrights, painters and, and so forth because they feel they have to be in their in a home country kind of as a you know as a powerful act of resistance i assume is this an act of defiance or is it a tool for survival for people in the arts when they come back let me add to your point is that many people from the arts field are on the front line and some of my friends are there the ukrainian writers yarina chernohus uh, a female very talented female writer is on the very hot spot of the front line. Writers Artem Chekh, Artem Chapai, Artem Polizhaka, you know, all of them are Artems, are also on, on the front line. There are cinema makers like Artem Saitablaev or Oleg Sensov who are on the front line. Unfortunately, there are people who died, very talented people who who were killed recently. And these are also people of culture. These are video makers, there are dancers, these are musicians. These are fantastic people without whom Ukrainian culture will be much more impoverished. So we should also keep that in mind. As for, as for people who come back, I think for many Ukrainians, actually being abroad during the war is actually a very difficult experience, psychological experience, because you are... I've not been abroad for a long time. I've just went several times on invitations to talk in, in Germany, in France, in Austria, in Slovakia. But even these short trips were very difficult psychologically because you live with all your minds, with all your heart, with all your emotions. You stay in Ukraine. You stay in Ukraine. You read Ukrainian news. If there are, When there is missile attack, you're, you're very nervous about your relatives, about your cities, about uh, etc. So actually, psychologically, it's very difficult, and therefore I'm not surprised that people want to come back as soon as there is an occasion to come back. And actually, well, in Ukraine, on the one hand, there is no uh, 100% safe city because everything is reached by the Russian missile. But at the same time, living in Kyiv is more or less okay even living in Kharkiv, although it is 40 kilometers from the Russian border, became much better. Living in Lviv or some other cities in central and western Ukraine is okay. There is a risk that you will die because of the missile strike, but there is always a risk that you will die in the road crash or whatever else. So I think people will search the opportunity to come back. And what actually keeps them abroad is mostly children, as far as I see. So the children went to education process, to schools. They kind of started to adapt. And of course, it's it's also a difficult, difficult story when you changed one location, you moved abroad, and now you should change it again, move back to Ukraine. So I do think that there is a big, you know, magnet of nostalgia, especially among the artists and they will be seeking an opportunity to come back. Do you think that other countries can help Ukraine through culture? Like, is there um, 
this exchange? Of course, as I said earlier, Ukraine suffered from uh, from this silence, and this silence was kind of a blindness. The world just didn't care about Ukraine, and uh, in the 19th century, in the 20th century, Ukraine was absolutely unknown. And if we take, for example, the early 20th century, when there was a question of national self-determination, this Woodrow Wilson's principle of national self-determination, if we look at it closer, we understand that it concerned only the nations of Habsburg and Ottoman Empire. Maybe to some extent, some of the nations of the Russian Empire, but the most Western of them, meaning Finland, Poland, and the Baltic states. Ukraine was absolutely invisible, despite the fact that Ukraine already had a vibrant culture, already had its statehood, already had everything which is needed for the state. And of course, in the 20th century, we have the story where after the crash of the Ukrainian independence and then after the Stalinist genocide against Ukrainians in the 30s, Ukraine was again a blind, has become again a blind spot everywhere, except for some universities in America, everywhere it was a blind spot, including in Germany, including in France, including in other countries. And therefore, what we need right now, of course, is to catch up with this. So there are so many beautiful Ukrainian novels, fantastic Ukrainian literature, it's so interesting to analyze these authors, many of them. If you take the 1920s, you will see the pattern that they were young people who wrote the fantastic novels when they were aged 26, 27, like Valerian Pidmohilny or Mykola Khvilovy. And then they were either killed in the camps or they were led to suicide as Hulevay, or they were broken morally as, as Yuri Yanovsky or Pavlo Tychina. And what they wrote afterwards in this uh, you know, field of extreme violence of Stalinist regime is just, you see that they are broken as artists. So you have this also element of extermination of not only physical, but also moral extermination. But still there is something that I think that the world should discover and it's very interesting. Ukrainian cinema is very interesting, from Dovzhenko to Parajanov to contemporary cinema. As I said, Ukrainian music is extremely interesting, not only the classical music, but also the modern, the popular music, because it combines tradition and modernity in a very interesting way. Ukrainian literature is very interesting. Ukrainian visual arts are very interesting. And some of the key our artists are actually expropriated by the Russians. If we take such figures as Malevich, as Ivazovsky, as Repin, as uh, Alexandra Exter, many others, they are portrayed in the Western European museums or American museums quite often as Russian artists, while they are Ukrainian artists. So there is uh, so many things to discover, and I think that I will invite your audience to to listen to the Timothy Snyder's course at Yale University, which is available on YouTube. Uh, it's about 20 lectures on making of modern Ukraine to understand how interesting Ukrainian history is. Yes, that's very interesting. I find interesting that you said, you know, there's things to catch up on because already last year on the podcast, you said that, for example, foreign media needs to, and I quote you, 
stop seeing Ukrainians as just objects for observation. Instead of asking what Ukrainians feel, they said uh, journalists should be asking what Ukrainians think to uh, give Ukrainians a real voice and to be seen as agents who have something to say. So this kind of goes into what you just said, that the outside world didn't really know about enough about Ukraine. Has the situation changed? Is there today, a year into the war, more intellectual equality? Or is the Ukrainian civil society still viewed as naive and only an object of observation from your point of view? The situation is changing. We should not forget that this is not the year of the war, but this is already in the ninth year of the war. It's just the second, the second phase, which is more massive, more cruel. But the war has started in February 2014. And during all this time, of course, there is a process. There is a process of explanation. There is a process of understanding. There is a process of talking. Of course, we cannot compare what's happening now with what's where we were like some five years ago. There is progress. There is much more understanding. There is much more interest to Ukrainian voices. We get invitations to write, uh, to talk, etc. But I think we need to think about some strategic decisions, strategic solutions, because I do think that uh, the whole 21st century will be more or less around the question of de-imperialization of Europe and de-imperialization primarily of Russia. Russia is the last empire uh, in Europe, and of course it will not give up that quickly. And Ukraine here is the key key story. So Ukraine is a key story to continue this long process of de-imperializing Europe. Europe was made by empires, as we know. It was made by Western Europe. Almost all the nations were empires at a certain point, starting from the 15th century. And all this story and, and the expansion of Russia also starts around 15th, 16th century. And all the story of the European history of modern times is a story of imperialization and de-imperialization. And uh, the German history is, of course, one of these examples. So if we take the 1920s, 1930s, there were some very sober people in Europe who were telling that, look, there are some empires collapsed like Habsburg Empire or Ottoman Empire or some others, but there will be a, a big confrontation between two imperial projects, the Russian one and the German one. And that's what we had in the Second World War, actually. And it was the end of the German imperial project, but it was not the end of the Russian imperial project. And the key to end this last empire in Europe, and empires are always built on violence, on expansion, on neglect to human dignity, the key to this is, of course, Ukraine. Not only Ukraine, but some other countries, but Ukraine will play a key role. So we need to think how to think in the long term, because now there is interest in Ukraine. What will happen in one year? What will happen in two years? It will fall down. Everybody will think about other, other issues. The war will be also can be also forgotten as it was in, in 2014 war. But I think we do not have a right to do that. We need to, all of us, Ukrainians and our partners, need to think how to highlight Ukrainian culture, how to reflect upon Ukrainian history. Because if you want me to resume, to summarize the Ukrainian history is one word, I would tell you that this is an attempt, an attempt, repetitive attempt to build a republic in a geography which was dominated by empires. 
And now we have finally a situation when this Republican or Democratic spirit is winning in Eastern Europe. And this is the key story for the whole Europe. So what do you expect then from the European partners in order to you know, help this endeavor? I think we need to highlight more Ukrainian culture. We need to translate more Ukrainian books. I expect more interest of European publishers to Ukrainian writers, not only fiction writers, but not only literature, but also to non-fiction writers, to journalists, to essays, to philosophers. This is still not going on. I don't see so much of the proactive attitude of the German, Austrian, I don't know, British, French publishers towards uh, towards Ukraine. Then I don't feel like they're looking for authors and to highlight and to translate. Of course, the highlight of the Ukrainian studies at the university, not only Ukrainian studies, but also wider studies decolonization studies, post-imperialism studies. This is something that Ukrainian experience can also help connect the dots. I think there is so so many interesting things to compare, not only with European societies, but also with African societies, with Asian societies, with Latin American societies, with indigenous people in America, for example. These are all stories that we need to, to think about. We can, for example, think about how to connect environmental studies with culture. Because Ukraine, as it was a culture which was developing many aspects in connection with the folk art, with the folk culture. And in the folk art, you have lots of connections with, with nature, with environment, with, with birds, with trees, with plants. And this is something that European modernity kind of ignored because it was saying that, look, modernity is about the man taking control over nature. Now, in the 21st century, we no longer think in that way, right? We think how to cooperate with nature, how to find a harmony with nature. And here, such cultures, which were always in this link with the, their folk traditions, can actually help. They And we have lots of these in our literature, for example, one of the greatest poets, Lesia Ukrainka. Her drama, Lisova Pisnia, The Forest Song, was named by American writer Skol Malnichuk in a very precise way, an environmentalist poem. And I think it's very interesting how Ukraine can give interesting incentives. And uh, one, the last thing, of course, we should not allow the Russian culture to kind of uh, repress the Ukrainian culture. We have, uh, unfortunately... Situations like what I've heard from the festival in Wiesbaden when Ukrainians protested against the participation of the Russian singer who actually supported Putinist regime, uh, supported the war 2014. And uh, the end of the story, as far as I follow, maybe I'm wrong, but is that the festival will go on with Russian singer without Ukrainian orchestras and Ukrainian musicians. I'm not sure this is the right thing to do right now in the current circumstances. Hmm. I, I found very interesting what you said about uh, if we stay with Russia and what you said about the de-imperialization of, of Russia. Last year, we talked about the differences between Russian and Ukrainian civil society. And you explained back then that Russian society is a function of the state, whereas in Ukraine, the state is a function of society. So If the Russian society, as you said, is a function of the state, does the Russian society then even have the possibility to influence 
the war at all? Is there any hope that this change can come from within? I don't know. That is a very difficult question. I think that I'm not an expert on Russia. I'm judging Russia from the Ukrainian point of view. So my my judgment will be, of course, subjective. Mm. I know Russian history, Russian intellectual history quite well. I read a lot of Russian philosophers. I read a lot of Russian Russian literature at the time. I'm not a neophyte in this topic. Of course, I read Russian and I speak Russian. And, uh, and therefore, I think I understand something. And from what I understand is actually that in Russia, it was not a nation state from the very beginning. Mm. Contrary, for example, to France and Britain. And this is a difference with these French and Britain imperialisms. That they first, France and Britain, England first became a nation state that then they expanded. Russia, at the very moment of its formation as a Moscovy state, it created this very crazy idea that it will become a third Rome, meaning that it will become a new empire, a new global empire. And it started expanding itself. So, and it always uh, was seeking for an ideology which would, you know, legitimize this expansion. In early modern times, this was the idea of the Third Rome, that it will replace the Byzantine or the Roman Empire. In the 18th century, it was an idea, Peter I's idea, that it will become, and then Catherine II's idea, that it will become a kind of a enlightened monarchy, modern monarchy, which was a lie, actually a facade, because it was very barbaric internally. And then, starting from the 19th century, there was this idea of the great Russian people, which is actually higher than, uh, than other nations like Ukrainians, Belarusians. Then, uh, in the 20th century, we all know there is a global idea of Marxism, of the global revolution, etc., etc. So the problem is that it was throughout of its history, it was focused on some very big global ideas, without being focused on really locality, how you improve your life on the local level, how you deal with your local communities, how you deal with your with improving the life of your local citizens. And, the, and this is where the society, the question of society, the issue of society was absolutely taken away. And therefore, what I'm saying is that we can actually doubt whether the Russian nation exists, because as Jean-Jacques Rousseau said, in order to make up a state and, and sign a social contract with a sovereign, you need to be a subject, you need to be a people, le peuple, as he said. So first you need to have this formation, and this formation should actually have you know, so certain difficulties with relations to the state, either exist when the state is not there, this is, for example, the case of Germany, and therefore there are so many influences of German cultural thinking of the late 18th century, early 19th century over Ukraine. And this is a very interesting topic, how the Herder philosophy was influencing Ukrainian national development, how this idea of collecting songs, of this ethnographic work, of this going through people from village to village to collect the the stories of the people, which was very popular in Ukraine in the 19th century, but it actually came from Germany. And why it came from Germany? Because German, Germany at a certain moment did not have a state. It needed to develop some other forms of this 
cultural integration. I think this is something that that Russian uh, Russian uh, Russia lacked mm. for all these times. If you look at the 18th century Russia, it was rather people was at one place and the authorities, which were very often foreign authorities, foreign elites, including from Germany, by the way, uh, they were dominating this land and the majority of peasants were actually serfs, etc. The same with, with the Marxism, where which which mm. totally the, the, the Russian communism totally oppressed any idea of a civil society which will have its its own thought, its own ideas, etc. And therefore we have the situation when where actually I think Russians are afraid that if you remove the state, if you remove Putin, everything will collapse. Ukrainians are not afraid of the fact that if you remove a leader, everything will collapse. Because, mm -hmm. as I say many times, it's not the the president who is the leader of the country. It's the country who is leading the president, leading our politicians. Mm. Very interesting. Yeah, You were elected um, president, talking about presidents, you were elected president of uh, PEN Ukraine last uh, November. How important is the Authors Association in times of war? This is very important because uh, I think what what is strength of the Ukrainian democracy is a certain number of of associations, grassroots associations, small groups of people who are actually and, and we see this emerging on on many levels. We see the communities of businesses, we see communities of of political actors, of of civil society. This is extremely important because this is how democracy works. Mm. You need to start from the local community, geographically local or local by by profession, and uh, and make this community kind of a a driver of change or a, an example of doing something. Can you say what kind of projects you are pushing ahead right now? Are there examples like things that you can actually realize at all under these circumstances with Penn? Yeah, of course. Uh, so, for example, we travel a lot. We travel across Ukraine. We have with my wife a, a minivan, which we bought for our three kids, a Renault Traffic, the, the cheapest minivan. And uh, now it serves as a volunteer bus. We decide to go somewhere to the front line, to the deoccupied areas, uh, to the south, to the east, to the north. We take writers there. We go to the very local communities. Mm -hmm. very small towns of, you know, several dozen thousand people. And we organize meetings with them, with the local people, to exchange stories. They tell us their stories of occupation, of war, of suffering, of, of the death of their close people. We tell our stories and or stories from other parts of Ukraine. We also bring books because... People really want to read, especially during the time of blackouts, mm -hmm. when there is no electricity, no internet. Yeah. People want to read. We understood that local libraries become kind of a focal points, magnets for active people in the small communities, in the small towns. We went recently to the northeast of Ukraine, to the Sumy region, to towns like Hluhiv, towns like Trostyane, Sochtyrka, very interesting and very touchy when we, we talk to those people on the ground. And both we kind of have this relation to small communities and they feel that you know people from Kyiv, from capital, are coming to them. We also go to the front line to destroyed villages, destroyed towns, 
We bring books there. We bring humanitarian aid. We bring cars from the front line, for the front line for our soldiers to evacuate the wounded. So this is how cultural institution also turns into kind of a volunteer hub. Mm. Of course, we collect donations from all over the world and uh, and we are extremely grateful for this. We we go to dangerous places like Kherson. We went there in late December. And for your audience, I want to say that we published a documentary about our trip to Kherson. Mm -hmm. Also, there will be a documentary about our trip to the eastern Ukraine. They're very touchy, moving, humane films, very short, actually, up to 10 minutes, 10, 15 minutes. You can find them on our YouTube Ukraine world. And you, you, you see this reality. You see the reality of the destroyed villages, but also people who continue to live there and to continue to have their optimism. We have lots of, of course, intellectual intellectual life. We organize lectures, we organize poetry meetings, we organize musical meetings. We are also a human rights organization. Therefore, we highlight the topics which are actually related to human rights, to destruction of the cultural heritage, and recently with Pan America, this is their report was published about the destruction of the Ukrainian cultural facilities. Very interesting, very important, important report. We support our members because some of the writers are still in the under Russian occupation in the south or in the east. So we try to support them, try to support the families of those writers who were killed, like the uh, the family of Volodymyr Vakulenko from uh, from the eastern Ukraine who was killed, kidnapped and killed by by the Russian soldiers just for the fact that he was a, a Ukrainian writer. Mm. Of course, we do a lot of work for international audiences because there is a need to explain what is happening and therefore there are people who are coming, um, the big famous Western intellectuals or writers, and we bring them to this places of of the war. And recently, by the way, talking about Germany, we've met with the, the president of Penn Berlin. Mm -hmm. He went also to the eastern Ukraine, so we traveled together. He brought some humanitarian aid, and we, we spent a very interesting time in talking and exchanging. There are many, many other things as well, of course. The scholarships, the, the prizes, very important that we try to highlight certain aspects of culture through prizes. For example, we have a prize of Shevelov Prize for the Best Ukrainian Essays Book, its annual prize. We have Georgi Gongadze Prize for the Best Ukrainian Journalist of the Year. Georgi Gongadze was a journalist who was killed by the Kuchma regime in early 2000s. We have a prize for, for Best Translator of the Ukrainian Literature Abroad, the Drahoman Prize. So there are other prizes as well. There's lots going on. So you, you mentioned that how, you know, you with Penn, you go to the people and you travel the, the country and you go to all parts. So that means you are quite close to the people. Has the war changed your relationship to other people? Do you approach people different now than you maybe did before the war broke out? <clears throat> My feeling is that the war brings extreme equality. And it's a real equality. It's not self, It's not imposed equality. It's not that equality of the communist regime. It's equality that you feel. So you no longer feel any kind of hierarchy. Like, okay, I'm coming from Kiev. I'm a Kiev writer. Mm. I'm coming to your small town, and you will listen to me. No, that's that's not what we're doing. 
We come from Kyiv, sometimes bring famous writers, Ukrainian or international, and we come to these places primarily to listen. Mm. That's an incredible experience. When we recently went to Okhtyrka, which is a town in Sumy Oblast, which actually stopped the Russian offense there and in, in some ways saved some other big cities. And uh, we talked to people and um, in the library, by, by the way, encircled with books. And it was kind of a big collective time of collective empathy. People cried, people smiled, people laughed, mm. but cried mostly because there, are, there were so many dramatic stories. And we talked for three hours, mm. for many, many hours, and more and more people were coming. When we went to Hluchiv, 10 kilometers from the Russian border in the north of, of Ukraine, people are very afraid that there will be a new invasion because Russians are so close. And we also asked them for to share their stories. And they started reading poems, one after another, their poems. There were people who didn't write poems before, who are now volunteers. They were reading their poems. You know, sometimes you're skeptical about these local people who are writing poems. Well, they're of course not, not professional poets, not professional writers, but there was so, so much energy there. And there were good poems. They, these poems were good. There were not some graphomanic mm. stuff. When we went to a village, a Kamyanka, which is totally destroyed village in the eastern Ukraine, and there are 200 houses, all of them are destroyed. And there are still about 10 people who are living in this village. And the places around the houses are mined with this small anti-infantry mines, plastic mines, which you don't see in the grass, so you really have a danger that you will lose your leg when you step in. And there are some people who are living there. So we brought them a generator, thanks to our friends from from also Ukrainian writers. And it's, it's, it's an immense feeling that they do not feel abandoned, that, mm. that there is somebody who comes to them and who brings them something and, and helps them in the way, because... Of course, people who are, you know, imagine you're in destroyed village. There was 1,000 people who are living here. Now there is 10 and nobody comes to you. And you don't have water, you don't have electricity, yeah. you don't have heating. You, you, you drink the rainwater or you drink the water that you make from snow. People need this attention. Yeah, absolutely. So maybe one last question is like, when you talk about these things and like all these things you experienced, how did you personally experience the last year? Is there anything that stands out in your memory where you say this was like, I don't know, this kind of epitomizes the year for me? It's difficult to pick up one image. I think that we've got a, a very strong belief in human beings, in the Ukrainian society, in its capacity to mobilize and to withstand the aggression. And we, we all feel like very intimate connection with the, with the community, with the country. And I think this is something that really in, in, in the Western world we, we need to rethink because there was too much suspicion about this idea of patriotism after the Second World War. Of course, this idea of patriotism was linked to kind of a nationalism or whatever else. But there is something, mm. something other in this patriotism. 
that it is just a feeling of 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 a certain community that you are not alone that you're part of some other people which will understand you without a word as i am a philosopher i'm also you know teaching political philosophy to my students and i realize that if you if you take classics of political philosophy like montesquieu like voltaire all those people who actually formed the the discourse of democracy mm. you will find out that one of the key values for them was the love for your country so uh, it it's it's not things that are contradictory like the idea of human rights and the idea of love for your country and this is something that we understand now much better than before that on the one hand we will not we cannot live without our country without our community without our nation on the one, on the other hand the nation cannot live without us without each of mm. us so we perceive our community our people as a kind of a infant as a baby that you need to take care about and i was telling you about this our talks in ohtirka we were impressed to see very young girl she has probably 15 years old or 16 years old of course her parents you know uh, took her abroad during the start of the war mm-hmm. and she spent some time in uh, in in a foreign country and she was telling us how she was mis- missing ukraine how she was missing her town how she was missing her ohtirka and she was crying and she was telling this story and she said i never thought that i can love a country like a love a human being like a love a person mm. and i think this is this is summarizes yeah. it it says everything thank you so much mr yamolenko uh, for the thank you. for the interview thank you for taking the time to talk with us and i'm very glad um, that the internet connection to kiev didn't break up uh, and we were able to speak for that long please stay safe and uh, take care of yourself That brings us to the end of this special episode on the Ukraine. If you enjoyed it, please feel free to recommend the podcast to others. The next episode will be published next week, where I'll be talking with political scientist Susan Vorschech. To make sure you don't miss this and all upcoming episodes, you can subscribe to the podcast. You can do that wherever there are good podcasts to be found, for example, on Spotify, Apple Podcasts or Deezer. If you have any comments or questions, please feel free to email us at podcast at And for more information on our organization, IFA Institute for Auslandsbeziehungen, visit ifa.de. With that, I say goodbye. My name is Amira El Al. Thank you for listening and I hope you join us for the next episode. Die Kulturmittler. Der IFA Podcast zu Außenkulturpolitik.